Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast on mindfulness and the practice of the Buddha's teachings. We're here as usual to answer questions you may have about your practice, questions about practicing meditation in our tradition, questions about practicing Buddhism in your daily life questions that are of importance to you, not just for curiosity or intellectual satisfaction, but that actually have some meaning and some urgency in your life. So we will begin answering questions at 15 minutes after the hour. In the meantime, you have time to post your questions in the chat. And then take the rest of the time to settle in, clear your mind. And stay mindful. We'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering questions.
Okay, that's 15 minutes. We're back. So from here on, we'd ask that the chat be reserved for questions only. If you have questions, again, post them in the chat anytime. We'll answer the questions that we have. Thank you, Bonte. We do have questions. When I do the mantra, the mantra in my head is too loud to focus instantly on the object, and when I say it quieter, it is better to focus on the object. Is it okay to do it like that? Uh, I think you're misattributing the cause of the problem. The problem isn't on anything you're doing. The problem is on the object. The problem is that objects are impermanent. So you won't be able to focus on the object anyway. The noting isn't to focus on that object. That object has already arisen and will cease. So seeing that when you note that the object is no longer there, is uh, or that you're no longer there's no longer the awareness of the object is important it's a it's a an understand or it's cultivating an understanding of impermanence that's what we would expect the mindfulness isn't about focusing you on or noting isn't about focusing you on the object that you're noting it's about cultivating that uh, a, a clarity of mind that will allow you to focus clearly on objects. Because the, 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 the only reason we're not able to have a clear mind and focus on objects with clarity is because of our reactions, our, our uh, bad habits of, of uh, reacting and uh, obsessing and getting caught up in as we were talking about in this study course this morning, we were studying the Badekarata Sutta, and it says uh, you don't get caught up asanghirang. You don't get caught up in uh, in the objects that arise. And so, mindfulness is just about stopping that from happening, because when you experience most things. In an ordinary context, you're going to get caught up in them. You're not going to see them clearly. And so to stop that, you remind yourself. That's what the word mindfulness, what's where the sati, that's where the word sati comes from. You remember, oh yes, it's just that that was just seeing, or that was just pain, or that was just the stomach rising. That's what you're doing. It's not a, it's not a question of using it to go back to the object. The object's already gone. It's already, the experience has already happened. You're just trying to create clarity or maintain clarity about that object and prevent the subsequent arising of greed, anger, delusion. So, uh, I mean, the mantra can't be loud or quiet, um, but trying to... to um, condition it in some way is is the wrong attitude because that's 
control, that's trying to control things, it's trying to force things to be a certain way, trying to create a better result. It's it's the I don't like the results of my practice, I'm gonna to try to make them different, which is the sort of the antithesis of mindfulness. Uh, this situation you're describing of loud and quiet, well, there's something going on in your head. So there's probably lots of things going on, and all of those things you should take as objects of mindfulness. Again, not to focus on them as a result of the mindfulness, but to create clarity so you don't try to adjust or fix or control. So you experience and let go and continue in the present moment. Growing up, I developed anthropophobia, which impacted my ability to express things sensibly conversing with people. It's also difficult for me to accept seeing people laughing and having fun in places, like a doctor's place or monasteries, where I expect seriousness. I feel out of place and not fitting in anywhere. How can I help myself learn to trust people, not judge them, and reduce my conceit? Yeah, we'll, we'll try not to reify any of these things or identify with any of things. Like you're using a lot of language uh, that, that hints at the idea of, of conceptualization. Like, it's fine. I mean, the language is language and we have to use that language. But So I'm not accusing you or I'm not sure. I don't know your situation. But I would caution you to, to, to look at how you perceive these things because you're creating narratives and those narratives have the potential to take on a life of their own you reify them you you turn them into a thing like anthropophobia just a word it doesn't encapsulate reality reality is moments so it's okay to use it it's fine as a description but be clear that you're just using that for our sake for for my sake to express to me and that you're not clinging to that you're not identifying yes i have this problem and you reify, you've turned it into a big boogeyman for you. Uh, because the moments of experience are going to be more complicated and more interesting. I mean, the, 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 the main cause is going to be ignorance and delusion, the lack of clarity, the lack of familiarity, the lack of understanding about the experience. So all these things you're describing are complicated. There's more than one, there's at least well, there's multiple um, mind states that are going to be involved with these things that you're describing. I mean, conceit, um, feeling out of place, uh, judging people for the way they act, criticizing them in your mind, uh, phobia, which is fear. So try and focus on what actually arises in the present moment instead of creating narratives about who you are and what you are, and the problems you have. Uh, you can't help yourself. Yourself doesn't exist. So how can I help myself? It can't, can't be done. There's no self to help. I mean, that may seem trite or, or nitpicking, but it's important that you're clear on that before you try to fix the problem or try to approach the problem. Uh, and so the the... The answer is pretty simple. You, if you cultivate mindfulness, you'll have better clarity and you'll 
be better able to deal with all of these things that arise, all these problems that you're noticing. But try and notice the experiences individually instead of creating a narrative about who you are and so on. Who you are, who you were, who you've been growing up. Like, remember this morning we talk, just talked about this, Adita Nanwakamiya, don't go back to the past. It's just creating, it's reifying things. You give things a life of their own and you can't fix that. It's, it's because it's not real. You can't change something that doesn't exist, right? So when you say, I have anthropophobia, fo focusing in that way is, is a dead end because it doesn't exist. It's not, a, it's not a reality. What really exists is the moments of fear, the moments of aversion, and so on. So try and describe it to yourself like that. There are moments, these are the moments that are arising, and of course that's what mindfulness is for. You say to yourself, uh, disliking or afraid, and only when it comes up. Don't don't have any preconceived ideas of who you are and what you are, and so on. That would be my main advice for this. Can I use Maitri meditation as a substitute for noting? Because whenever I note, my mind notes things even at night. I don't feel tired next day, but I am worried about not getting enough sleep. No, you can't use it as a substitute for noting. It's, it's a completely different type of meditation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you don't feel tired, then the only real problem here is the worry. And you should not worry, worry. That will sort itself out. If you need sleep, you'll get sleep. Mindfulness will not interfere with the need for sleep other things might and they can be byproducts of a big for a beginner meditator where you obsess or you stress or you you worry or you you fuss about trying to have perfect meditation but that's not mindfulness that's just a byproduct of applying your bad habits uh, your unwholesome tendencies to mindfulness meditation mindfulness can be a struggle in the beginning because of this because you're you're doing it all wrong i mean you're 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 using your we we use our defilements our 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 unwholesome tendencies as as weapons getting angry when our practice is not going well for example or greedy wanting our practice to go well or conceit when we feel like our practice is other people's practice is better than ours or our practice is better than theirs or so on. lots of things that can go wrong um but no mindfulness won't do that, and it certainly won't get in the way of your sleep. But yes, it, in the beginning, it can be a, a challenge. But uh, if you're patient and you continue to practice, especially if you practice under a teacher, I don't know if you've done our at-home course or if you're interested in doing the, uh, the at-home course or the intensive course that we offer. It's a really good way to straighten your practice out and you should see that mindfulness should be really good for sleep. It won't, means you probably will sleep a little bit less than before because you don't need as much sleep. Why? Your mind isn't as tired, isn't as stressed. When they say people need so many hours of sleep, they really have to be talking about the average person who doesn't ever practice mindfulness meditation because there are so many things you can do to your mind that tire you out more and require more sleep or keep your mind fresh and, and reduce the need for sleep. And mindfulness is one of the latter. It certainly reduces the need for sleep. There's no question about it. 
Now, metta or maitri in Sanskrit um, is useful as an auxiliary meditation. It can be useful if you want to cultivate the jhanas, the samatha jhanas, and even uh, gain magical powers and that sort of thing. Uh, but we use it mostly as an auxiliary meditation, a supportive, a protective meditation. So it's it's in no way a substitute because it's totally different. It's never going to help you see the three characteristics, not in the way that mindfulness will. But um, it's supportive in that it reduces um, it reduces anger and and ill will towards others and obsession over revenge and that sort of thing. It strengthens the mind as well, so it's a good support. I come from 20 years of Zazen and Shikatanza. Repeating the words falling and rising disappear after a few minutes naturally, left only with my breath. Is that okay, or should I keep returning to the words? So, I mean, let's let's analyze. There, there's something usually missing from this kind of a description. Um, not being critical, but it just this is common sort of uh, description. So, be clear that rising and falling disappear right after you say them. And I, I maybe that may that may sound kind of uh, uh, pedantic or whatever, but. It's important to to understand what is the what, what is really meant by disappearing, and that you're you're leaving something out most likely from this description. So you say rising in your mind, and that saying of it in the mind arises and then ceases immediately. So when you say they disappear, that's not quite um, accurate. You, there's something else going on. It's usually the mind becomes very still or quiet. If you've done 20 years of zazen and other types of meditation, there's no question that that's that's a likelihood of of uh, possibility for arising. So there'll be a quiet, or there'll be a calm, there'll be a stillness of mind, and uh, there can also be a attachment to the calm and the stillness and the smoothness that comes from uh, giving up the, the noting. The noting can be quite jarring. It's meant to be jarring. It's meant to pull you out of your rut of, of uh, well, even calmness can be a rut. Even stillness of mind can be a rut. Not, not exactly, but it's hiding something. And there's no reason really why the noting should be jarring and should be a, a disruption for your calm and peace, except that the calm is is a dependent sort of calm. It's dependent on you uh, stilling the mind, you avoiding any kind of um, act mental activity, like the energetic activity of, of noting. Noting is benign, is benign, right? There's nothing evil or horrible or upsetting about it, but it can feel that way. So likely what you're experiencing involves that, where it's a disturbance. And because of your familiarity and, and um, 
well, we might say your comfort that you find in uh, in in things that are in stillness of zazen and so on. That um, it's going to seem undesirable to to continue with the noting, which is an energetic and it's a disruptive force, and it's something that will show you this potential for um, preference for the stillness. It'll show you the aversion towards having to call up, having to summon up the awareness, uh, the clarity that this is this and this is that again and again and again. It's like, um, you can think of the noting as like exercise. It's, It's different from calming meditations for that reason. It's not meant as a sort of a retreat or an escape from reality. It's meant more as a toughening up, uh, providing you with the tools, the weapons to face uh, experience, to face the discordant, unpredictable nature of ordinary experience. It's It's a different sort of exercise. But again, the the aversion is unwarranted if i'm not saying you i mean likely in these sorts of cases it's it's likely that there is some sort of subtle aversion towards it that leads you to disincline towards it and uh, it's natural because of how much more pleasant it is to have meditative states um but so there's nothing wrong with those meditative states but the attachment to them can be very subtle and hard to notice, and something you should pay attention to. So the answer is yes, you should keep returning to the words. It's a challenge for you. You should see it like that. It's disruptive, uh, and it's going to show you your uh, potential partialities. And that's what it's designed to do, of course. It's designed to show you all your partialities. If you're partial to not saying the words, then it's in your interest to, to learn what happens when you do say the words. That's generally how it's going to go because if you're if you're accustomed to being peaceful and calm and tranquil of mind, saying the words is not going to be uh, not going to be much fun, not going to be enjoyable until you can create the sort of flexibility. I mean, that's what it, the, what it's trying to cultivate is a a lighter, more flexible, more um, What's the word? Asanghirang, uh, asangkupang, as we were studying this morning, where you, you know, unwavering state that is not not disturbed when things are disturbing. It doesn't need to be in a tranquil state to be at, at peace. You can be at peace when the mind and the body and the world around you are in disarray and chaos. I tend to notice less self-control and mindfulness after practicing vipassana, and I worry about my impact on others. Can I follow the Eightfold Path without practicing traditional meditation? Well, I don't know what you mean by vipassana. I don't know if you're practicing our tradition or some other tradition, but I'm not suspicious that that uh, wouldn't happen in this tradition, because it is true that in the beginning you're going to incline or you're going to face the the um, potential for 
disinclining to control. You'll you'll be less quick to try and force your mind to stay in control. So anger is going to have more of an opportunity because you're not going to find ways to suppress it, avoid it, um, ignore it, um, or dull it with uh, with with drugs, alcohol, entertainment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have to face it. You have to taste it. And so, in the beginning, it can be quite uh, powerful, and can lead to outbursts and so on. But to some extent, those outbursts even are important to see. It's important to see how you get out of control. It's important to see how out of control things like anger are. If you don't ever see that, you'll just keep lying to yourself that you're somehow in control until it blows up anyway. I mean, it doesn't make it any better to try to control it. It just makes it more twisted and perverse and complicated when you develop these complex defense mechanisms. But this is why we have courses in meditation, why we have intensive courses to provide you with the opportunity to make yourself a lab rat and um, have unadulterated uh, access to your emotions without any fear for repercussions. You can face them, you can taste them, you can observe them without having to be concerned with how they're going to affect your daily life. Um, so yeah, and, and there's not really a case where, where an average person could follow the Eightfold Path without practicing meditation. It's very much caught up in the practice of mindfulness. So I guess I would just ha- ask you, uh, encourage you to reevaluate your concern for self-control and try and appreciate the benefits of coming to terms with the things that are out of control and learning how to live a life that is uh, adapt that adapts to things that are out of your control if you're reliant and dependent on control you're inevitably doomed to suffer disappointment and dissatisfaction because reality isn't under your control how does one go about gradually cultivating mindfulness when caught up in detrimental emotions I am able to note barely, but still reacting or indulging negatively in the moment. Well, gradually, very slowly. Um, Seeing, because part of it is, it's not just about preventing the reactions or preventing the indulgence. It's about seeing the unwieldiness of the whole thing and seeing the suffering involved with it. And seeing to such an extent that you grow weary of it. You grow weary of it. Atanibindatiduke. When you see it clearly, and the more clearly you see it, the more weary you become, the more tired, you get tired of it. Disenchanted. You lose your excitement, positive or negative excitement. You lose your excitement in good things. You lose your excitement about bad things like fear or anger. You just get tired of it all. Tired of samsara. That's what leads to letting go.
That's what leads to freedom. So gradually is going to be like that. Now, if you really want, it can't be gradual. Excuse me, it can't be gradual if you really want results. You have to engage in intensive practice. You really have to do intensive course practice uh, to really get clear and immediate results or rapid results. Otherwise, it's going to be a long and winding road, which is valid, but uh, far less effective. That's why we recommend people to start gradually to, to get an understanding of it at home, doing the at-home course, and then to really consider doing an intensive course where you can go further and really get a solid foundation in it. We say that we are not under our control. Is it under our control to be mindful? We say that um, realities aren't under our control. They're, they're moments. Uh, and being mindful isn't, isn't under our control. I mean, we don't exist, so it's, it's just... You can't look at it the way you're looking at it. I mean, these questions are... These statement and the question are not uh, really valid, either as a statement or a question. You have to look at reality as moments of experience, and you have to see that those experiences are impermanent, suffering, and non-self. Part of the non-self means they're uncontrollable. It's just really just a different perspective that doesn't even admit the potential for control. All it means really is seeing clearly, watching things arise and cease, and seeing that that's the nature of reality. It's it's really just about being in touch with reality, seeing clearly. Seeing that, like when you're typing on the keyboard, when you typed out this question, the reality was not you typing out the question. The reality was the moments of experience in the mind. How, what happened when the, the thought to type arose? Right, That happened. At some point there was a thought. And there was formation of the thought. Maybe there was desire. Maybe worry. And then, and then there was the physical result of, of the typing. All of those things are moments, and that's what you have to pay attention to. And if you focus on that, you'll see reality is not exactly what we think it is. And a lot of what we think reality is, is not really real, like us, like I. These things have no place in, in, in reality. So you have to kind of... Um, You have to kind of move away from a theory of what is, like, is there a self or that sort of thing. You have to move towards the practical reality of experiences and trying to understand the nature of experiences. You don't need some metaphysical theory of the self or the soul or that sort of thing. They're just not useful. Is it advisable for lay people to practice any of the Dutangas? Yes, absolutely. Um, there is a list of, of Dutangas that are practicable by lay people. Some of them are not, of course, like the one about wearing one set of robes. Um, 
Yeah, the alms round is probably not really practicable. I mean, it's, you could do some of these things in a modified form for lay people. But like, look at it. Um, actually, now that I think about it, I'm not sure if it actually mentions. I think it mentions for lay people. It certainly mentions for bhikkhunis. It says for bhikkhunis, not all of them are are valid. But I think it also, in the Visuddhimagga, I think it also mentions which ones. Of course, many of them are obviously valid, like the Nesajikanka, never lying down practice, the living under a tree is is possible, though not recommended for, not recommended in all cases. I mean, it's not recommended, for, it's not allowed for bhikkhunis, just because of the problems that they had with bhikkhunis being sexually assaulted, living in the forest. Things like that, um, you should be wary of eating one meal a day, obviously, these sorts of things, especially during a meditation course. Of course, yeah, they're great things. But, the, you know, don't don't fixate on them. It's good to try, mostly when you're doing intensive practice. But uh, they're not a substitute for mindfulness. And that can be a mistake that people make for all of the various types of ethical precepts. Don't mistake them from for the practice that actually leads to the goal. Could you please explain what is a concept versus reality? I know you just mentioned it, but I still have some confusion. A concept is a thing. It's... Um, a, well, I mean, it's an idea, but the problem is that things are all ideas. Things don't actually exist. A concept is something that doesn't actually exist. That's really about it. So Paris doesn't actually exist. And by exist, we mean, we have a specific meaning of the word exist. We mean uh, is a part of experience. That's really it. Because there are many things that are a part of experience. Not, not that many, but I mean, there's more than one. Uh, there's multiple things that are part of experience, but there's infinite things that aren't. Like, uh, let's say, a rabbit with horns is a concept. A rabbit with two horns is a concept. A rabbit with three horns is also a concept. A rabbit with an infinite number of horns is also a concept. You see, so there's an infinite number of concepts. Uh, I am a concept. This monk that ever, that you know, and you've you've come to the YouTube channel of this monk, is just a concept. And there's infinite, right? How many humans are there? And how many humans? How many possibilities are there? This is all infinite. It's infinite, but none of it's real. It's not a part of experience. You don't ever experience me. What you experience is sound touching the ear and creating experience in with the brain, in conjunction with the brain and so on and the mind experience in the mind so that experience of hearing is real what is it well it's not it's not a hunt i mean not every aspect of what it is should be clear to you but you can understand some important qualities of that experience of hearing. And the only ones that we consider to be really important are whether it's permanent or impermanent, 
whether it's satisfying or unsatisfying, and whether it's uh, yours with itself or not self. Another thing about concepts is they are kind of a self. Most concepts are kind are, are a certain kind of self in the sense that they have selfness. They have they have an entity to them, like um, you know, what we call an entity. A, a, per, a human is an entity. One human, one entity. But reality isn't entities. It isn't the same kind of thing in that it's momentary, it's ephemeral, it's kind of illusory almost. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's something you can't grasp at. It, it arises and then it's just gone. The only way you can grasp at it is if you conceptualize it. You create the idea that, oh, that's a man sound or that's a woman sound. And you make something out of it, and you get the idea in your mind of a man or a woman or that sort of thing. But uh, that's the difference. Realities, we, we simply mean experiences or, or the various aspects of experience. And by concepts, we mean th entities, people, places, things, ideas. Things that only exist as mental creations. Because the, the rabbit with horns, anyone would tell you that's just that's just made up. You just made that up. There's no such thing as a rabbit with horns. You just made that up. That's, that's not real. But the same can be said for me, for this monk, Yuta Dhammo. You can say the same thing. You just made, I'm just made up. Made up by my parents when they saw me. Well, they didn't they see me as a monk, but made up by the 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 totally uh, conceptual ceremony that led to my ordination. All of that is just concepts. There's nothing real about the ordination. It's not what's actually what's actually happening is sound and uh, you know, physical movements and putting on the putting on the robes is still just physical experiences. I mean, all of that is real. But the robes and the monk and the bowl, none of that's real. All of that is just, you just made it all up in your mind. We just make it all up constantly in our mind. It's not what we're actually experiencing. Now, if it's still not clear, if it's still hard, then I would say there's there's no way I can explain it but further than that. Because the, the real reason why people struggle with this is not because they don't have a good explanation. It's because of lack of, of depth of mindfulness practice. If you practice mindfulness, it becomes quite clear the difference because you actually get to come in contact with reality. Well, that's no, that's not fair to say. I mean, that sounds kind of mysterious and esoteric. You become familiar with reality, but it is kind of profound. You become, you come in contact with what's right in front of you. So to, to bring it down to earth, this isn't something esoteric or mysterious. You just get in touch with we might call it you get in touch with your roots, but not in the way we say that in English. Normally that means something very different, but it is our roots. Get in touch with the roots, where how you're what you're rooted in, what everything is rooted in, just to get in touch with the momentary experiences that arise in the present moment. I do this meditation, but I have a book 
that describes the same method without saying the mantra words in your mind. What are the benefits of using the mantras, and, if any, what are the drawbacks? There are no drawbacks. The only potential issue is if you obsess over if you obsess over the mantra unrelated to the actual experience and people can really get wound up in mystical mantras like you can use mantras to try and create something like if you feel unhappy and you say to yourself happy happy because you want to be happy right that can be dangerous so that would that's not a drawback but well you could say it's a danger if people get that lost and, and misunderstand the practice to that extent. Mantra meditation is ancient. It's not just this. Look anywhere in any tradition. You'll find mantra meditation everywhere. It's because words are powerful. The benefits are that it's concrete. It's an actual practice. I don't know what this method would be without the mantra and how you could recognize it if it... Oh, maybe you mean watching the stomach rising and falling. But without the mantra, I'm not sure anymore what you're doing. It's not clear to anybody what you're actually doing. It's not a concrete practice. There's no concrete sense that you're straightening the mind. You're not strengthening your sanya. You're not, you're not uh, initiating the, this, what is called the proximate cause of mindfulness, tira sanya. You're not strengthening your recognition that this is this, this is this. You're not creating this state where you see that what is seen is just what is seen without any extrapolation or judgment, you're leaving room and leaving, leaving potential for extrapolation, for distraction, for bad habits. I mean, the, the greatest... Um, the, the description from the person who has practiced Zen for 20 years is one of the greatest examples of how powerful mindfulness is. It shakes up very strong meditation. It shows you sometimes subtle, and I'm not really... I can't really comment on that person because we'd have to have more interaction to really uh, to know whether what I'm about to say is true. But it's quite common for it to show you some minor wrinkles in how you've you've subtly cultivated attachment to one thing and aversion to another. Mindfulness really makes you honest, or the the mantra as a as a as a practice used to cultivate mindfulness really makes you honest. Uh, I mean, used as a as a samatha technique, it it makes you well not so honest, but it it creates honesty in a different way because it's honest, right? If you're noting a, a, a bright light and you say white, 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 that's a samatha practice with a mantra, and you get very honest about the whiteness, and so there's no hindrances, but it's missing the sort of honesty that uh, that ties you to ordinary experiences because it's for the purpose of dissociating from from your ordinary experience sometimes after i note something there is a feeling of joy like an incredible burden being lifted off my shoulders this has been happening more frequently is it to be expected it's a great sign uh, it's um it's a it's a great sign of of some greatness in you that you have this uh, this joy this potential for joy and that you uh, have the clarity of mind to see and not just to see but to practice 
to such a, with such strength that you see the results. Uh, I mean, it's not that uncommon. It really is how mindfulness should feel, especially if you're sincere and, and dedicated to it. So for those of you who are unsure and listening, listen to this person. Someone is now anecdotally giving us an example. of That, that is quite common to hear. Um, but the only, and it's not really a but, it's just the, the caution is to know that it is still possible to get attached to these pleasant states and to over-associate the one with the other and to think that somehow you can expect that result every time you note, which is not precisely the case. The, the burden generally, yes, like it should feel like uh, when you're mindful, it should feel like you're lifting a burden, uh, generally speaking. But the pleasure can often be a trap where you ex come to expect it and you come to anticipate it and depend upon it as as a, a, an object of desire and attraction. So when this sort of thing happens, this, we two things. One, appreciate the that you're seeing good results, but remind you, as always, to be mindful even of the good experiences. If you feel joy, you have to note that. And there really isn't any long-term connection one from the other. The the lifting of the burden should come become more and more familiar and should really be a part of it. Uh, but not always the joy. The joy is something that it's not it's not a problem. It's a good sign for sure, but also a very dangerous one because very common object of attachment, which then leads you to not be mindful and to get caught up in expectation and even potentially try to force it and try to control it and make it come back and make it stay. What are qualities of a good meditation teacher? Well, the biggest quality is they know how to teach. Um, some some auxiliary qualities is they don't have greed, anger, or delusion. I don't know whether I should put those. I mean, obviously, if you can find someone who is, has no greed, no anger, and delusion, that that's the best you can do. But it's not necessary, per se. If someone can parrot the teachings well, who has learned how to pass on the teachings. Um, I mean, if someone is not mindful, and is not cultivating mindfulness, then uh, it, it isn't going to be that powerful for them to have the capacity to teach, you know, the, the intellectual knowledge, let's say, or the practical knowledge or that sort of thing. But uh, but I, I frame it this way because I want to caution you against looking for too much, really. The biggest problem that I've seen in a meditator, and often it is an expression of greed, anger, or delusion, is teaching the wrong things, teaching things that are unorthodox. And orthodox isn't always bad, but it, it, if it's going to be bad, it's going to be because it's going to be something unorthodox. So it's hit or miss. Guess. 
more often miss, you know. You're much better off focusing on the orthodoxy, focusing on what has worked for thousands of years, focusing on the tradition. More usually, um, and just be able to analyze the the instructions, be able to understand what is being taught, and be able to see any weirdness about them. Like if someone's teaching you all sorts of ritual and telling you the importance of things like ritual or telling you the importance of of things like pleasure, telling you to avoid pain, that sort of thing. I mean, there's, there's sort of danger signs, but it wouldn't be so much about, you know, like, uh, um, vigilantly paying, or like paying attention to the, the qualities of the, the meditation teacher. I would pay much more attention to the actual instruction. And if the instructions are solid, you should be good to go. And, you know, if 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 the person has strong greed, anger, and delusion, it, it should come out in the instruction. But that's really all you have to look for. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you all. Good questions. Thank you all for coming, for asking the questions. I certainly appreciate people's interest in mindfulness practice. The Buddha, well, Ananda actually, after the Buddha passed away, said that the practice of the four Satipatthana is what was going to allow for the continuation of the Buddha Sasana. So appreciate everyone's interest and dedication to mindfulness. So I wish everyone... May we all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. And may you have a good week. Thank you, Chris and Jim, for helping out this week. Sadhu. Sadhu.